Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from cricket's past, well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app. This episode of Red Inca, we're talking about something that occurred to me while watching the first 100 game, that women's cricket has improved so much that it barely registered to me that this was a domestic match. So I went and got myself an old domestic women's player to talk about it. My name is Isabel Westbury, freelance journalist, writing, broadcasting on sport, cricket mainly, and when it's not sunny, I go and hide away, I'm a financial crime lawyer. Izzy has played for Somerset, Middlesex and the Dutch teams before becoming a cricket writer. And on this chat, we talk about the little changes in the women's games, what drawbacks professionalism might have, the gender pay gap, growing new markets, how the athleticism has changed, and why women's cricket has improved so much that Izzy wouldn't get a game anymore. So I was watching the first 100 game. I went to the first 100 game with my family and I was enjoying it. And I was thinking, this is a good game. And then suddenly I kind of realized that I had never seen women's domestic cricket at that quality before. So I haven't been to a women's big bash game, I think, since about 2017. So that's a while back now. I think that was the last time I was over there. And so it just felt like to me that it had actually risen a lot. Now, you used to play for Middlesex and Somerset. Have I got the teams right? Yeah, that's right. Started off with Somerset my, oh, more than 10 years ago now um, and then moved to Middlesex um, and I moved to London. The quality just seems like it's gone through the roof. Oh, it's so funny when you messaged me asking about, I guess, the quality in domestic women's cricket because although it's been, not steadily, I mean, it's exponentially been rising mm. over the last few years, this was also the first year where I suddenly was like, oh my God. And it started actually with the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy this season. So because of COVID last year, as with the men's, a lot of these are now live streamed. I haven't been covering. This is the domestic 50 over tournament where we've now got a new tranche of fully professional women's players in it. And so it's the first season where it's kind of benefited, I guess, from not quite half the team, but a lot of the team having trained as professionals over the winter. And I watched a few of the clips or a few of the matches or some of them at least on the live streams. And honestly, it was just like, this is ridiculous. I mean, what are we, 2021? I'm, I retired, what, four years ago, less from playing for Middlesex. And my immediate thought was, I wouldn't have a chance. 
in getting into any of these teams. And and that's, you know, I was captain of Middlesex. I was, I was on the fringes of England. I, I was good, I guess, or, you know, I thought I was quite good, but um, some of the talent and not only the talent, the capitalisation of that talent in such a short period of time. That's what I think blows my mind is how quickly it's happened, which is amazing, but also quite scary. It's all the little things for me. I mean, obviously the bowling is quicker, which is fine. And I think people, I've covered that on this podcast. The power hitting has certainly changed, but it's like the throwing quality is just gone through the roof and things like wrist spin didn't really exist in women's cricket or if it did it was like basically me bowling it was like pointless and when I first started covering women's cricket at the international level I see a bit of domestic stuff I I go down to Beckenham sometimes to watch you know the Kent women play and so I have seen a bit of it but the running between wickets in women's cricket up until about four years ago was sub-Pakistani men's level like it was absolutely pointless and because of the smaller circle I think that brought a problem but no one seemed to understand how to judge a run or anything like that. It's all those little one percenters that have just jumped. Yeah, I mean, because of all intents and purposes, before you become professional, you're essentially the equivalent of a men's club cricketer because you're contributing the same amount of time. You know, you're going to your training after work, you're thinking about cricket outside of your nine to five. So it's all those tiny things. You know, if, if there are good cricketers, I mean, I mean, Nat Simmer's been a brilliant cricketer from day one. She's stood out from for the rest. She hits the ball harder. She's a better player hand-eye coordination, etc. But as you say, it's the fact that they can now train as athletes, they can eat as athletes, they can have guidance from a bigger support staff, they can think about core strength, for example, is probably one of the most important things to a bowler for just staying fit on the park that you don't really think about as a club cricketer, do you? Things like tactical awareness. I mean, even Kate Cross, I remember three years or so into when England women's had become professional and, and Mark Robinson entered the fray and sort of asked her to explain her thoughts on the pitch when they went to inspect it before a game. And she didn't know what to say because she never really had the time to think about those things because when they've been training before, you train your core things. You train your batting, your bowling, your fielding. You haven't got time to think about anything else. So now with the professionalism, it's just afforded time to think about all those tiny things that actually together create quite an important big picture it's funny you mentioned kate i remember interviewing her on Talksport when we were commentating together and she was saying that i think she started playing for lancashire which was like a fetus maybe 12 yeah, but she probably. was really young and she said that part of the reason was is that the level of cricket was rubbish like she was really honest with it when you started off is that kind of your memory as well that you know there was obviously a couple of good players there's always been good athletes and there's always been good cricketers but that the actual overall level just wasn't particularly high yeah, I mean, I had an unusual introduction to cricket, I guess, because I started off playing in Holland, where I was living at the time, the Netherlands. Oh, actually, it was in Holland, because South Holland is one of the provinces, but anyway. Thanks for the geography. Yeah, just, just so that you know. But I, like many of my generation, I guess, didn't start playing women's cricket until much, much later, especially Holland, obviously, being a smaller demographic in terms of the population that played cricket. I just played club cricket, and it was only when I got a left through the post, I think, when they realised that there were 12 women that made form a cricket team and I was one of them in the country. I just played boys cricket and you, you carry on doing that until you can't, I guess. I was about a kid at school that was quite a good athlete. You Normally at school you have people that are good at football and ball sports and I was, I was good enough to do that, but then nothing exceptional. And that's why I say I think, I genuinely think, this isn't any humility, I don't think I would get into the domestic women's cricket teams that are now playing in the 100, for example, because I was a good sports person, but nothing more than that. So yeah, it's just out of sheer numbers. 
they weren't the numbers playing. So, yeah, of course, it, the standard's going to be a lot lower. It was. It's still only partway there. Mm. I mean, this is what is really exciting, is that what we're seeing now is the effect of professionalism on still quite a small number of women playing cricket and girls playing cricket. Now, the next step is, in 10 years' time, the people that are attracted to having watched this will surely be a lot bigger. Well, hopefully it will be. And then we'll see even more progression. That's the excitement. When did you actually play your last domestic game? 2017, I think. And you're still young now, and you can pay me for this on PayPal later. You're still young enough to play now, right? So why did you retire at the time? I think it was, I devoted a good 10 more so years to cricket. I got as far as I could. I realised at that point that I was probably not going to play for England. And as my dad always so neatly says, that I'm probably better in cricket off the field than I ever was on it. (laughs) And it takes up time. I think I've always liked having lots of interest. Cricket had been one of them. And again, even thinking about whether I'd have been good enough to now play for a hundred team or anything, it's also you need to commit, don't you? I mean, I almost think myself very lucky to have lived in an amateur era or until my last season where it could be just one of your interests. So yeah, cricket has always been one of my interests and I felt that if I wanted to carry on or try to compete at that level, I'd have had to devote so much more time to doing so. And at that stage in my career, my life, I guess, it was the right time. to. I think about it a lot. I mean, I don't miss it at all because I am definitely better at talking about it than I was playing it. <laughs> Not me. I'm the opposite, sadly. I just <laughs> never got a chance. <laughs> yeah, then we all think that. But one thing that I do think about a lot is that my main discipline, I was an off spinner. And I think about someone like Graham Swan, who made a debut for England when he was early 20s, but he didn't come back until he was, I think, about 30, 29. So I retired before I reached that age where he came back. Sometimes I think I'm in my peak right now at the age of 31 of a spinner's lifetime. You know, what might have been, but definitely wasn't good enough, by the way. But (laughs) we all have those flights of fancy. No, I still have them. That's fine. (laughs) If you came through now with your level of athleticism and your talent and everything, would you have invested more time in it because it was professional? Or would it maybe even have put you off for you specifically? You know, how do you think that would have gone? It would have been a much bigger decision, I think, in your late teens. So I came over to England when I was 16 and I went and was training with the Somerset Academy at that time. So was, Anya Trobsall was on it, Josh Butler, Lewis Gregory was on it. And I remember just being so jealous of the guys because that was around the time when they were getting offered the summer contracts for their counties, you know, their first payments were coming in. And at that point, it was 2008, Like There was no way that a woman was going to get paid as part of the domestic structure. And I had to start applying for universities. I had to go to university. And my mum turned around to me and she said, I, I remember it so well, you know, you don't know how lucky you are that you can play cricket, but also go to university, have a life outside it and a career. And now looking back, I think I definitely would have wanted to be a professional cricketer and I would have made that decision then. But of that Somerset Academy, only the Joss Butlers, the Lewis Gregories, came out of it, really, and had a flourishing, not only domestic, but in Joss's case, international career. 70% of those guys that invested in it, some didn't go to university because they were playing, you know, they got on to county cricket. Some of them had 
okay-ish county careers. Most of them have already retired. Most of them didn't have very long county careers. A few first-class matches didn't stay around that long. And then have to kind of restart their life again in terms of, right, do I go to university as a mature student or do I have to do something else? I've sacrificed a lot of other stuff. And I am very grateful, A, to having quite grounded parents who are very non-sports orientated. But B, because I was a woman, I didn't have to make that choice. And it is a big choice when you're in your teens to do that. So I don't think I wouldn't have wanted to be a professional and made that choice to try and be a professional. But it's a risk and more people will be exposed to that risk. But that's one of the side effects of professional sport. For every success story that we hear about, for every person that worked so hard in the gym and in the net and was the last one out, you know, there's hundreds of others that put in just as much, but just weren't as good. And that's going to happen in women's cricket as well. What you have said is perfectly correct. And I can understand why you would have thought about it that way. But it would have been nice for you to have the option as well, where that wasn't really an option, was it? At 16, it's tough to make that kind of choice and and work out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. I mean, I'll I'll work out what I'm going to do with mine very shortly, but you could have talked to your parents, you could have talked to the coaches and talked to everyone, whereas you just didn't have that choice. Someone like Anya, who obviously threw herself into cricket and was probably a bigger cricket nerd than you, I think, in some ways. And And a lot better than me. (laughs) Even I didn't want to say that, but if you want to put that out there. I mean, I will happily be less good as a world cup winner but <laughs> would she take six for seven for That's as well like not, six for in the world cup final, not just the know. world cup winner the literally the world cup winner in her yeah. case <laughs> but for someone like her i would think and I, I don't know as well as you do but i would have thought for her it's almost a natural decision of like no i'm really good at this i'm going to pick it mm. but it would have been nice for someone like you and the many other women who didn't even get to the point that you are at to make that decision. So that in itself is a huge step forward, even before you get to everything that is going on with the skill and everything of the game improving. Oh, absolutely. I think one of the frustrations I often have around women's sport is that we talk about things in very binary ways, like professional is either good and amateur is bad. And it's not the case. And it's the same as pay gaps. There's either a pay gap or there isn't. It's like, well, you know, everything's a work in progress. And I think about this as well in terms of exposing more girls at a young age to cricket. Now, if I look at the successful England women's team of 2009, they won the T20 World Cup, the 50 over World Cup and the Ashes as well. A lot of those girls, I think Sarah Taylor, Holly Colvin, Charlotte Edwards, even Ishiguro, a lot of them credit their grit, their determination, some of their skill as well, from having to persevere in boys' cricketing environments. They were always the only girl in the team, or in Sarah Taylor and Holly Colvin, they played together at Brighton College. But, you know, it was almost proving to the boys that they were good enough, getting acceptance, having to survive a volley of bounces in the first over just because they were a girl kind of thing. And that really built them. They really felt very strongly that that built them into the successful international athletes that they were. Now, today, if you're a young girl being exposed to cricket from the age of, say, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, the chances are you'll play quite a lot of mixed cricket to start with, but you'll probably go into a, a girls' team because they exist. Now, girls' teams didn't exist in the era of Sarah Taylor, Charlotte Edwards, etc. It's because they had to play with boys. So does that mean that now a lot of girls are going to miss out on that opportunity of having to succeed in a boys' environment? Now, my view is a more holistic one, is that opening the game up to so many more girls, that that talent will come through. But there will be a few that would have benefited, I guess, from being the only girl in a boys' team. 
And I think it's a really interesting one is that, yeah, the net benefits are probably heavily in favour of just more people playing. I think what you'll get is, I've seen this in the associate game over the last couple of years as well. What you get is you get very good athletes who mm. are not particularly cricket people who didn't have the struggles, but maybe they're six foot nine or maybe they bowl yeah. particularly fast or maybe they can whack the ball and they will probably coast through their 20s and some of them make it and some of them don't compared to what we had before, which was almost everyone in associate cricket was the biggest cricket nerd in the world because they were the only cricket person in their area, in their family, in their school and all those sorts of things. So I think that will happen. But as you said, and I've talked to this a lot with the associates, when it comes down to it, they always say, oh, it's about talent development and grit and wanting it more than everyone else. And I said, yeah, that's all great. But if Steve Smith's in the other school and they don't play cricket yeah. in that school, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think that's the same with women. If we only have 8% of women ever picking up a cricket bat when they're girls, and at least Perry's not in that 8%, that's where you, you have those sorts of problems. So I, I can see that. It's almost a first world problem in some ways because you have that ability, a first world sporting problem, I don't mean in a geopolitical way, because you, I can understand why older players, and you, you get this in the men's game, many of them are like, well, we had day jobs and you know we did this and we were tougher than everyone else. It's like, yeah, but we want everyone to play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't yeah. that what we're doing? Uh, I want to talk specifically about the 100 for a minute. Mm. There is, and I, we won't get into it, you and I, but I'm sure both of us have a lot of concerns, quizzical looks when it comes to the 100 and how it's put together. But I think probably for both of us, one thing that we are very happy about is the fact that it is actually showcasing the women's sport. It is allowing for more women professionals and everything else. Like for all the negatives that the 100 has, it has sort of supercharged women's sport in the UK right at the moment. Yeah, and I think a lot of the benefits is uh, not because of the format or anything. It's just the fact that you're launching a new tournament and you have the kind of opportunities that you do with that. It's not as though, say, T20 Blast has existed for X number of years and now you're tagging a women's tournament on top of it. These are new entities, new cities, new kits, new heroes, new role models that are just being kind of thrown into the ether together. And that's something that I think the ECB have done. It took them a little while to get it. So I remember when the, the 100 was first announced and it was very much as though there was the 100 that we referred to, which meant the men's 100. And then, oh yeah, that's also a women's 100. But to their credit, the ECB and the marketing have kind of in the last year, especially been very particular, men's 100, women's 100. When we have somebody to speak to the media, men's player, women's player, when we have our advertising, men's player, women's player, you know, in that respect, yeah, it's huge. And what's really lovely to see is that the, the cricketers, the women themselves, the athletes competing in these teams really feel it. They feel like they're being treated in that respect equally. And I think that's huge. I'm smiling because you know what my next question is going to be now you said in that respect. Yeah, because there's still a lot of things that aren't equal. But just to add to that as well, the other thing is not only the women feel treated like that, they also feel for the first time, really, the men are sort of starting to look at them too as athletes, as part of the kind of athlete family. Because I think this is something that a lot of the female cricketers in this country are very aware of, is that there is still a, a dressing room men's image of the female athletes amongst professional men's cricketers of resentment, really. They're not as good as us. Why are they getting all this TV coverage? Why are they getting paid when we're just bigger, stronger, faster, better? And they haven't really watched it either or talked to any of the female athletes either. So I think that, yeah, in terms of 
A, there's the a marketing perspective and B, changing perceptions within the game. So this is big. Yeah. What about pay? It's a work in progress. <laughs> and I think, again, this goes back to talking about women's sport in binary terms, is that this is the biggest step for women's cricket in England ever, really, in, in terms of pay. By um, a long distance as well. It's by not, a long yeah. distance. You know, they're earning a lot more money than they could ever really conceive of some 10 years ago. But there's still a massive disparity between the men. Now, we're all aware of that. The frustrating thing is nobody's asking for equal pay now, which almost as you say that, you're like, why not? Where is that sexism? Where is gender equality in every other profession? Like, that is actually illegal. But we're in a situation that has been born out of hundreds of years of cultural norms. And cricket, amongst every other sport, is working towards gender equality. And we are on a pathway to that. And it is looking good. We are on an upward trajectory. And if only ECB could have a little bit of humility by acknowledging, if all their PR was like, this is massive step and the biggest step ever, but we're not there yet, then I think a lot more people would have come on board a lot more quickly than I keep on getting emails telling me that this is a tournament with gender parity at its heart. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. it's working towards gender equality and it's a huge development and we are, uh, grateful is the wrong word, I don't think women should be grateful, but we are very happy with the progress that's been made and it's very promising, but it's a work in progress. And I think this is what I get on social media the whole time, is like, mm, you can't expect equal pay. And it's like, no, nobody has been asking for that right here, right now. So, yeah. It is interesting, though, because I can see how it's harder in a legacy competition, right? If you've got a competition yeah. that already exists, as you said, and you're attacking the women, even the Women's Big Bash, which came you know, a couple of years later, but if you're starting something from new and you know that eventually you're going to have to get there anyway, I, you know, I would like women to be equal pay, but I also think about these things from a cricket perspective of if we really treat these women like professionals, like all the domestic women in the UK are treated like professionals properly, and we talk about a lot of this in Australian cricket, oh, look how good the Australian women are, and they're all professionals. It's like, well, Sammy Joe Johnson still works with car parts, and in fact, almost every second woman seems to work with car parts in Australian cricket if she's not playing for the Australian national team. But if you were able to do that so that that could be their main job and maybe they only have to work for a few months in the off-season or they could go do some coaching overseas or whatever, you could actually supercharge your women's team. Like There was an opportunity here to not only do the right thing spiritually, which is great, but also yeah. make your cricket team better. If you did that, if, if you just made, what is it? It's about 120 women off the top of my head, is it? If you made them all professional, fully professional, you have such a big advantage over almost every other women's cricket culture in the world. Yeah, and I think that's where the conversation really needs to be moved towards. I think we almost need to not park the pay gap, but acknowledge that that is a work in progress. And then in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that will be narrowed, that gap. But more importantly, it's getting more women being able to train full time so they're not having to fit everything in around day jobs, which are both physically and mentally exhausting. And it doesn't require that much money. I think that's what's really frustrating is that, okay, let's say in this country, I think the average wage is something like £24,000. I mean, if you were able to pay enough women to make a fully professional domestic competition, £24,000, that's not that big a dent in the ECB's pot at its disposal. 
I mean, you and I live in London, so there's a lot of people in London now going, wait a minute. But yes, I, I see what you're saying. But even when you say that, 24,000, it could be 35. Like there, yeah, are, there are ways of doing it. There are a lot of good young male county cricketers who are on uh, their rookie contracts are around 30 and 35,000, aren't they? I think I have to look at the latest numbers and they feel like they are fully professional cricketers. It's just getting over the threshold where a woman looks at the income and the outgoings and thinks, I don't need another job now. I can just do this and put my time to it. And I think one more thing about the fact that this is launching a new tournament, and this is something I, I didn't really think about until only a few months ago, and I started talking to people in the ECB, is that the 100 wouldn't exist without women. They wouldn't have been able to launch the tournament because of the sponsors, the investors, and just the way in which cultural attitudes are in 2021 in the UK is that the idea of launching a whole new sports tournament just for men simply wouldn't have flown, whether it be with the cultural acceptance. But, you know, sponsors these days want to look good. They want to look socially responsible and progressive. And so they very much were demanding that a women's and men's tournament. So what's kind of just in my head is that these guys on the high end of the pay packet with £100,000 for the tournament, right, that wouldn't have even existed if they didn't have these women on 3.6K. So I think, yes, there's a conversation about the pay gap, but there's also, it could be more than it is now. There is enough money, obviously, floating around for some of the women on the bottom pay scale, and especially those who aren't able to be full-time, to be paid more. And, you know, 17, 17% of the men doesn't look great. No. Well, I was thinking before too, like, so we talk a lot about, and it sort of goes onto your, uh, your point from just then we talk about quite a bit, Oh, you know, the women don't get as many viewers. They don't get any, as many ticket sales and all these sorts of things. But from a marketing point of view and from an advertising point of view, women almost have a huge bonus to be played. Like I don't think the angry bald guy who's going to attack both of us on Twitter when this podcast comes out is going to understand just how important that is. And I remember Investec, when they came in and they were doing, you know, men's test cricket and they were doing the women's hockey team and there was a balance that they were playing there, but also they understood what looks good on posters. And if you just have a bunch of white men on posters, it's not the same as having a bunch of different people. I'd probably say of all the things that I get on social media, I've got a term for these people. I call them the Adam Smith page one people. And these are the guys that just everything that I write, immediate tweet will be supply demand it's just economics duh yeah so when i talk about adam smith these are people that have probably read a quote from (laughs) economist adam smith about supply demand and women will only get paid more when more people want to watch them and this is very much they're looking at a snapshot in time right here right now women's match is not going to attract the same crowd the same audiences the same money attention whatever they are not as fast as strong as athletic as the men but that is because it's a history, essentially. Mm. If I look at women's football, it was literally banned in this country for 50 years. Cricket wasn't banned, but it wasn't particularly easy to play it. So investment, time, infrastructure, attitudes, everything, that's going to change. And it's changed so quickly in such a short space of time. You go back right to the beginning of what we were talking about, about how good these domestic players are. You know, England women have only been professional since 2014. We're looking at one winter of professionalization of 41 domestic cricketers in five years time it blows my mind 
what's going to happen just out of this generation of cricketers, let alone when this generation has managed to attract 10 times more women or young girls wanting to play cricket. Like, this is tapping into an untapped target market if you're looking at it from a business perspective that is going to give you so many more returns than something that's almost, I'm not saying that men's cricket is saturated, but when you look at, I mean, I always think about men's professional football, like the Premier League. Imagine trying to be a sponsor that's like, oh, I think men's professional football is, is a good place to invest. It's like, well, good luck getting the funds to do that and the competition you're against. In women's sport, you can get in, even now, as we're on this exponential upward trajectory, you can start investing in it from quite a low base and your returns will be probably quite astronomical in the space of only a few years. And what's nice is that as a woman in sport for years, we just haven't had the evidence or the numbers to kind of lay this out on a sheet of paper and say, look, this is what will happen. But we look at the BBL now, the women's BBL in Australia, and we're already seeing it there. There's a template there. Mm. I mean, the television viewership for women's BBL, it's already rivaling men's stuff. It's, it's, it's nuts. And that only started in 2015, 2016. Well, I think also for your page one Adam Smith people, it's like, yes, but that's how business works. You create the market sometimes yeah. yourself. <laughs> you know, there was no market for Diet Coke. No one was walking around going, do you know what I want now? I want a Coke that doesn't taste as good, that will be slightly more healthy for me and, and will help me lose weight because no one was even thinking about that. They created yeah. that and it becomes a big industry. And that's exactly what we've got here. Let's just finish off a little bit with the cricket. 2009, I was at the Australia-England semi-final in the World T20 at the Oval, same ground we were at the other day, and Claire Taylor destroyed Australia. Don't worry, you don't have to remember any of the details of this game. I see you looking up going, oh my God, what game is he talking about? <laughs> Claire Taylor absolutely destroyed Australia. I think Beth Morgan might have batted with her as well. Also, that was the hilarious time where Beth Morgan came out to bat, and on the big screen, they put up a picture of Owen. I mean, they got the surname oh, right, wow. uh, but yeah, I mentioned that to Beth and she's like, you saw that? I was like, it's one of my favorite stupid things that's happened in the cricket ground. They just kept placing the ball in the gap, right? And the ground was a little bit bigger. It wasn't a full-size oval that they were using, obviously, the, the ropes were in. But essentially, Australia did not have enough athletic, quick-moving fielders with big arms to be able to stop them getting a two every ball. And it felt like it almost wasn't a proper game of cricket at a certain point because it was so lopsided. But once you had someone as good as Claire Taylor, who was at that stage probably the best batter in, in world cricket, and she was just like, I'm going to chip it here, I'm going to chip it here, I'm going to chip it here. And they were scoring at about 10 runs and over without anyone hitting a boundary. And the thing that I noticed being at that first 100 game was that would be impossible now. There are just too many quick-moving fielders. Yeah, there's still Lizelle Lees out there, and there's still a couple of fielders with no arms. That's going to happen in any professional form of cricket. There are quite a few men that are like that as well. But you would now have at least four to five boundary riders who are quick-moving and have an arm and can get the ball in. You cannot milk the game. And it's fundamentally changed as a sport in 12 years, almost in an unrecognizable way. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I talk about my own experiences. I don't know whether I should be revealing. I could tell you, well, it's quite obvious who it was. <laughs> I was out quite recently after a game um, with this other person. We were, we were happily merry, I think is probably the best way. And okay, this is a former England women's captain who may have won the Ashes in 2005. I and mean, she turned to me. <laughs> I love how you just haven't said her name, but everyone who knows women's cricket is like, yeah, got it. Claire Connor turns to me and goes, <laughs> I wouldn't have made it into these teams. And this is like England's most, well, one of England's most successful sports what, captains. One of the two. 
one of the two. But to have won the 2005 Ashes and everything that she's did on the field, let alone what she's done since, mm. to turn to me and say, I don't think I'd have made these teams. So she was talking about the Rachel Hay of Lint Trophy teams. And it's, it's just on the count of the athleticism and the professional. Yeah, I mean, athletes is the word to describe them. They are. It's crazy. Good for them. I mean, to almost think, God, the amount of time you have to put in the gym and sort of all that kind of work. I was always really slow runner. So I always get worried about, you know, trying to sprint in the field that you see now and running between the wickets. I can see it with England women, but they're fast. It's good to watch. Well, the other thing that I noticed was, a, I remember just about halfway through the game thinking, this is incredible that the level of talent here in women's domestic cricket, I'm trying to think of 2016, when I was at the Women's World T20, the quality is just better in women's domestic cricket now than it was in international cricket five years ago. Yeah, good comparison. Make, you make men's comparisons there too, because the IPL might be better now than international cricket at a similar thing, but it just feels like the women's has gone massively through the roof. And then I was thinking, this may not even be the best women's domestic tournament. The Women's Big Bash probably has, what, two, three, four, five years of development on it and more women who have been professional for a longer period plus a lot of them play other professional sports like you know a lot of them play Aussie rules football as well so there's even another level of professionalism there but to think that you can put that game on the first game of the hundred and no one's like oh women's cricket shouldn't be on tv and no one's sitting there going well forget the bald angry twitter guy we'll get later but a general cricket fan is looking at that going this is a good quality game of cricket if you had put a domestic game on from five or 10 years ago of women's cricket, it would have almost been unwatchable to a cricket fan who'd ever watched men's cricket. That's almost disappeared, that whole marketplace now. In a very, very short space of time, and it was only a few years ago when every game for England women that you knew was going to be televised, you kind of had this pit at the bottom of your stomach. Not only did England need to win, they needed to look good doing it. And that's still something that sort of when you come across in test cricket, just because women don't get the opportunity to play four-day cricket. So you're always thinking, God, you know, they haven't played this form of cricket for two years. How is it going to look? I've forgotten how it looked the last time they played. But in white ball cricket now, just because they're playing it a lot more, you just feel quite comfortable, like it's going to look good. One thing I would say is that almost raises a new problem in itself with the way, as you say, like Australia, every... WBBL team in Australia could probably challenge a T20 International World Cup. Now, that's a problem because that means that those countries that have this domestic infrastructure now, so Australia currently, England currently, and also just for what it's worth, why I get so frustrated at India is because if they had this IPL, they would then have very quickly eight teams that could start competing on a comparative level. Right, so what happens to the rest? That gap is just going to get bigger and bigger. And I think Australia are very worried about this. I mean, yes, it's nice in a way that they will always be either first or second at the moment in the, for the next X number of years in any international tournament, unless some freak accident happens, a bit like West Indies, for example, winning the T20 World Cup in 2016. You know, that was an accident. But otherwise, you're just going to see almost a rotation between England and Australia on the the basis of uh, the strength of their domestic infrastructure. And that gap, I do think India will also probably join them more out of just being shamed into it than actually realising the economic potential that there so obviously is. There will probably be this trio of countries that will just dominate at international level. And I think, uh, I know that England are worried about it. Heaven Light talks quite a lot about needing to have competitive international matches. Even just going back to October last year when England women 
finally got to play in the pandemic summer when everyone else was pulling out. They played against the West Indies. And honestly, as soon as that got announced, I mean, my heart kind of just sank because I knew that I was going to cover it. And I was very glad. I knew that it was very, very good from a symbolic perspective that we had cricket. But you knew what was going to happen. You knew that England were going to absolutely trounce the West Indies. It wasn't going to be that great to watch or cover, to write about. And I was just thankful that it was T20s and not 50 over matches. That's not West Indies' fault. My goodness, England are very, very grateful for them coming there. But there is now a gulf with this domestic professionalisation. It's probably going to grow. And that's not great for world cricket. So basically, what could happen is what everyone is afraid of happening in the men's game which is domestic leagues taking over and two or three teams probably winning on a rotation. Yeah. That could happen quite easily in the women's game because you talked about India and, you know, we'll finish up here, but it's like you would not need to invest very much money for India to be the best team in women's cricket for 20 years at this point. And make loads of money from it. I mean, this is the real irony is that this could be so lucrative. Anyway, I'll stop strumming. Well, I'll never stop drumming that. Won't someone please think of the money? Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Crickets. <laughs> <laughs>